This is Chapter 147 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, gratitude and a great adventure. Over the last couple of months, many of us have experienced the joys and the pitfalls of working from home. And it could be here to stay. A recent study finds more than 40% of workers would prefer to work remotely in the future, and companies like Twitter have said they'll let any employee who wants to telecommute do so forever. So what can employers do to engage workers and build team culture? Authors Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick say it boils down to one concept, gratitude. Chester spoke with our Steve Scott. A little gratitude can go a long way during the coronavirus pandemic. Our old friend, work culture expert Chester Elton, has a new book out. It's called Leading with Gratitude. Chester, great to talk with you again. Great to be back, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you have found that good bosses are using gratitude to get the most out of their remote employees during this pandemic. Why gratitude? Well, it's really interesting, Steve. You know, as as we've looked at the last recession and crisis, lessons learned from there and lessons that we can apply now when you're going through any kind of a difficult time and clearly the pandemic is a difficult time two things need to go up exponentially one is communication more and more communication because in the communication gap that gap is filled with rumor innuendo and fear so we need to be constantly communicating what are the new rules of engagement what are the new ways we engage with our customers and so on the second thing that needs to go up exponentially is gratitude. And that's because we're all feeling very vulnerable, particularly the people that are working from home that haven't worked from home before. They want to know, how am I doing? Are we headed in the right direction? Am I on track? And there's no better way for a leader to do that than simple touches of gratitude. Hey, you're doing great. Here's the roadmap. Hey, we hit another milestone. And those expressions of appreciation and gratitude go a long way to calming down people's emotions keeping them engaged, and keeping them more productive. Does that make sense? It does. Does this fall in line with the old adage of you catch more flies with honey than vinegar? Absolutely it does. You know, we we say more carrots, less sticks, right? Particularly now, you've got to be very careful. I'm not saying that you don't have, you know, those difficult conversations. When things are going wrong, you need to correct it. What I'm saying is, In a crisis, you need to be much more sensitive to the emotional impact of those kind of negative connotations. Expressions of gratitude build up a gratitude reserve, a gratitude bank, so that when you can have those critical conversations, your people are much more receptive to your coaching and to the things they need to do to correct whatever went wrong. You have actually found a gratitude gap. What is that? Well, really interesting, Steve. So we did this study and we asked leaders, we said, do you think you're above average in giving, you know, recognition, appreciation and gratitude? And almost 70 percent said, oh, yes, yes, we are. We asked their direct reports. Do you feel like your leader supervisor is good at giving expressions of gratitude? And only 23 percent agreed. (laughs) So there's this gap, this perception gap around hey, I'm really good at this, and yet the people that report you say, actually, you know, you're really not very good at this at all. That's the gratitude gap. How about a couple of quick tips for bosses listening to this that they can use today? 
Exactly. A couple of quick tools. One is, I love this, assume positive intent. In other words, particularly now when people are, are sheltering down in place or even if they're not, if they're out on the front lines, their kids are home. Life is more complicated. They've maybe got an aged parent they're worried about. They may not be getting back to you as fast as they can. Assume positive intent. Assume that people are trying to do the best job they can. Things are getting in the way. When we assume negative intent, we tend to vilify people. We tend to to take on this negative connotation. Assume positive intent. People want to do the right thing. It's just a little more difficult now than ever. He is the Apostle of Appreciation. Chester Elton's new book (laughs) is called Leading with Gratitude. Chester, again, great to talk with you, and thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Always great, Steve. And by the way, we've got a wonderful website called leadingwithgratitudebook.com with lots of free downloads and videos and additional tools to help you lead with gratitude through a crisis. I hope you'll take advantage. If you're looking for a book to escape the world for a little while, Author Susie Gilbert would like to entice you with her debut novel about a cross-country trip to deliver a homicidal bald eagle to a Canadian wildlife sanctuary. Sounds crazy, right? Well, it is, in a good and totally satisfying way. I recently had the chance to talk with her at length about Unflappable and her journey to get it published. You have 30 seconds to convince readers to pick up your book. What do you tell them? It is about a wildlife rehabilitator named Luna Burke and a, an unsuspecting getaway driver named Ned Harrelson, and they are trying to smuggle a homicidal bald eagle from a private zoo in Key West to an eagle sanctuary in Ontario. And they're aided by an underground railroad of wildlife lovers, and they're being pursued by just about everybody. They're heading from Key West to Ontario to an eagle sanctuary, and the question is, will they make it? I have to tell you, I loved this, as you call them, underground railroad of uh, wildlife rehabbers. They're honestly, that cast of characters are are my favorite part of the book. And it's actually a world you know really well. Yes, I I am part of that world. And these people, I I know people who are like this. These are these are based on real, real characters. And uh, we're all connected by the Internet. People who take care of wildlife injured and orphan wildlife tend to be kind of nuts and they bond with each other. And literally we will just go to mind boggling lengths to help each other out. How did you get involved in the world of rehabbing? Um, I have always been an animal person um, my whole life, Uh, not necessarily birds, but I moved to the Hudson Valley from New York city and someone told me I should go check out a Raptor center, which was then in Rhinebeck. And I went and just fell in love with Birds of Prey. And I ended up working with uh, Birds of Prey for 11 years. Then I opened my own sanctuary and hospital for all kinds of birds out of my house. And I did that for 10 years when my kids were growing up. So you you mentioned that the, the characters are like people that you know. How much of your own personal experiences do you draw upon to to write this book? A lot. Some of the situations you get into when you're taking care of wildlife, it's it's so crazy. Um, you know, you always you have to think on your feet. Not you don't necessarily have people chasing you and trying to put you in jail, but uh, you you know you just you, you do a lot of stuff on the fly, so to speak. <laughs> What's the biggest misunderstanding people have about rehabbers? 
I think people think that people who work with wildlife are like Snow White. You know, we have all these animals that love each other and they love us and they're all circling around our heads and, you know, they're helping us clean the house and that kind of thing. But in reality, working with wildlife, you know, they're afraid of us. They, they either want to go for us and defend themselves or they're scared to death. And part of what we do is, you know, trying to make them feel comfortable enough to recover from their injuries or, or grow up and be able to be released. And, um, you know, this is, I, I drew on this when I was writing this book because you're, you're smuggling, smuggling a, an adult bald eagle from Florida to Ontario. And the thing is, you know, you can't just stick a full grown eagle in a car trunk. You, you have to be really careful of the bird's stress level. So while you're in the middle of this big car chase and, and everybody's trying to capture these two people, they've got to make sure that the homicidal bald eagle that they're carrying doesn't stress out. They have to make sure that he's comfortable. They have to make sure that he's not jostled. And it just, it just adds to uh, everything else. Have you yourself ever encountered a homicidal bald eagle? God. Um, I have handled uh, eagles before, not necessarily homicidal ones. This one in particular, normally if you refer to a homicidal bald eagle, it would be one who was raised in captivity. The backstory behind this eagle is someone stole him from his nest when he was young. And, uh, you know, eagles raised in captivity, if they're not raised correctly, will get homicidal. Definitely. Um, I have worked at a place where uh, there were there were great horned owls free flying. And if you wanted to go into that enclosure to feed them, you had to wear a football helmet and pads and gloves because, yes, they would come after you. (laughs) I think one of the more fascinating aspects and I is something that you kind of you feel like you should know, but you don't realize it until it's put there out on the page for you, is that, you know, we're talking about this really majestic bird, a really large bird, and it yeah. you would think, oh, my God, this bird must, must weigh a ton. And then you realize, wait a minute, no, they really don't because that's how they're able to fly. That's right. Yeah, that's the thing. Their bird bones are hollow. And so you look at this enormous bald eagle, and actually the males are smaller than the females. So the males... They weigh about eight pounds. I mean, a big female would weigh about 14, but they are so strong. They're, they're so, you know, they are, they are so built for what they do. You mentioned going to a, a, a raptor center is what inspired you to get involved with rehabbing these types of birds. Is that really how a lot of rehabbers stumble upon the type of animal? Because it seems like everyone's got a very specific niche animal, whether it's turtles or bears or sugar gliders, you know, like it's, it seems to be like, is it just an animal people have always loved as a child, a a favorite pet? Like what draws people to the animals they decide to, I guess, shall we say, specialize in? Well, you know, every person has their own story. And this is, you know, this is one of the fun things about writing this book. And this is what I, I hope that people could get a window into is that, there are so, there are so many different types of wildlife, and there are rehabbers who will will take anything that comes in the door. But most people end up specializing, and 
each stop, you know, in this trip, they can only go about, you know, the, the longest they can have this eagle in its crate in the car and keep it comfortable is five hours at a stretch. And then they have to stop. And every place they stop, the people do different types of wildlife. So you get a window into, you know, sort of the lives and the setup you need for all different kinds of wildlife from from Florida panthers to to black bears to to opossums and bunnies. I mean, you get you get everything and all these rehabbers, you know, they really have a sense of humor. You have to. (laughs) This is one of the things with this book is it's it's a funny book because you need a a sense of humor if you're going to be dealing with lots of wildlife. I want to switch gears a little bit. I know that you're already a published author, but you took the self-publishing route with this one. Why is that? My last two books were published. The the first book I wrote was a children's book called Hawk Hill, and it was published by Chronicle Books. And uh, they they said to me, um, I sent it to, I didn't have an agent then, I sent it to 52 publishers, and they said, we love the story, but it's not the right format. If you rewrite it, you know, to traditional format, we'll take it and we'll publish it. And But that would have, I thought it would have ruined the story. So I just kept going. And the 53rd one took it, which was Chronicle Books. And then my second one, I was running this wild bird hospital and I wrote a bunch of stories that uh, I thought might bring a little money in for my bird hospital. And I met this wonderful agent who convinced me to turn it into a book, which I did, and I didn't expect anything. And he ended up putting together a bidding war. There were seven publishers bidding for it, and HarperCollins won. And it was so out of the blue. And then with this novel, I had never written a novel before, and I was working with this my agent. And I thought once he said it was okay, because it took me took me almost two and a half years to write it. I had no idea how to write a novel. And I kept doing different drafts. And my agent, Russell Galen, would say, no, no, it's not there yet. And once he finally got it, you know, finally got it where he thought it would be a sensation, I was counting on it to be, you know, just go like the last one. And it didn't. You know, people, the editors did not, want this sort of funny, adventurous type of book. They, they wanted dark, they wanted somber. And, and it just, you know, it's another expectation of mine that went completely the opposite way. So um, I figured instead of beating my head against the wall, I would just publish it myself. And I think there's some people who may think, oh, that must be easier, but it's really not, right? Oh. Oh, no, no. Oh, people don't think that. It's, uh, <laughs> um, you know, actually, if you if you are really good at self-promotion and marketing and social media, I think it, it actually would might be the way to go because you're your own boss. You don't have to listen to anyone telling you like like with me. They said, well, if you turn this into a murder mystery then maybe we'll take it. And if you do the self-publishing route, you don't have to listen to any of that. But if you are not good at social media and self-promotion, then it's, it's a real slog. It's, it's difficult. Plus, um, 
I, you know, I spent so much time writing this book. You know, it's so solitary. And I just holed up in the woods and wrote it for a couple of years. And suddenly I had to do all this multitasking. And it's like my multitasking muscles had atrophied. And it was really hard. I know we're not supposed to judge books by their covers, but I have to say, <laughs> if I saw this sitting uh, in a bookstore, I'd have to go see what it was all about. It's a bright yellow cover with this classic red car in it and this lady nonchalantly just holding an, a ball deal with its arm, its wings spread. It just draws you in. It's really cool. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I actually, I, I had the idea for the cover and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not an artist. And so I, I looked up, I Googled photographs of a classic 57 Chevy and a woman holding it, you know, and an eagle. And I, I just kept re, resizing them and cutting them out with my little scissors and sticking it together until I got the idea of what I wanted. I mean, it was like I was five years old, right? It's like a, I'm, I'm in art class. But I got the idea, and then I had a um, a book. It's a, a company called eBook Launch, and they are in British Columbia. And they will do your book cover. They will format the book so that you have all different. You know, it'll fit. It'll fit in all different formats. And they actually did the the artwork for the book cover, which I just think is spectacular. No, it does totally catches your eye. So that. You did a good job there for by yourself not being a, a graphic uh, book cover designer. <laughs> well, let's just say I got the idea across well, and they carried the ball. <laughs> so, Susie, what so do you, you really want readers to take away from Unflappable? Well, I'd like one. I'd like them to have a really good time reading it. I'd like them to, you know, forget forget about the outside world for however long it takes them to get rid of through the book. And um, really, I'm hoping that, that readers will, readers who are not necessarily into the environment, who don't know about wildlife, um, will become interested. I mean, the stories of these animals, just they're all so compelling. And, and the natural history is, is just, it's cool. It's really great to know little, little things about wildlife. And um, I think it's a it's a whole new world for people who don't know, you know, don't necessarily know about it. And I hope they they would develop an appreciation for it. And possibly, you know, there are wildlife rehabilitators everywhere across the country. You know, actually, in, in numbers, there aren't that many, but they exist and they're so overworked and they're so underfunded. And I hope that people will decide that they're going to go online and look for the rehabber closest to them and, you know, offer to help out, send them a donation, ask them what they need, what kind of uh, materials. What's the easiest way to do that? Do you just Google wild wildlife rehabber near me? Or is there like a specific, you know, is there a listing somewhere that people could look at if they if their interest is piqued after reading this book? You can, uh, you can look under... National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, and they have a big list. You can also just go by your state, type in the, you know, New York Wildlife 
licensed rehabilitators and you'll get a list and then you can call around. Often it takes, it takes several phone calls. You know, if you have a, if you've found wildlife that is injured, sometimes it takes, it takes some time to scare someone up, but when you do, it's really satisfying. Well, we've been talking with Susie Gilbert. Her book is unflappable. It's a really fun read and you might learn something along the way too. So thank you for spending some time today with us to talk about it. Uh, Thanks, Lisa. It was really good. Thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. We love interacting with you on Twitter and Instagram. So if you aren't already following us, find us at WCBS 880 Books. You can also email me at lisat at WCBS880.com. Until next time, keep calm and read. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.